Okay, why don't we pray and uh, we'll get started, huh? Let's pray, guys. Well, Father, today we thank you for uh, giving us, Lord, the blessed privilege of coming together just once again, Lord, to assemble as your people, Lord, on this Lord's Day and just to be able to exalt in who you are, exalt in your word, Lord. We look to you by faith and, Father, we ask that you would increase the measure of our faith to trust you with all of our trials, all of our tribulations, Lord, all of our afflictions, our worries, all of those things that would cause us to be anxious of heart and mind. We cast our burdens upon you, but we know that you are able to care for us. And uh, Father, we pray that you would bless our time and uh, help us, Lord, to discern your word and the teaching of Scripture. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 I did want to show us something. Um, let's see if I can pull it up here. This is kind of risky. I'm getting in all kinds of technology up here, I know. Uh, there it is. It was an article that caught my eye, uh, and I was, wasn't joking when I said that Fernando Ortega is one of the few worship leaders now that I trust. Um, <clears throat> uh, there was a recent news article that came out called, Is the Christian Music Industry Liber Liberalizing on Gay Marriage? And uh, this came out uh, recently because of the recent Vicki Beeching um, confession, you know, her, her statement of that she has now embraced the lesbian lifestyle. And uh, this, um, this person who did this, Jonathan Merritt, he did a whole kind of analysis of what's been going on lately, going all the way back to, uh, to Ray Bolts in 2004, speaking about his coming out. Um, also, Anthony Williams, Christian uh, artist who openly became a gay gospel artist, the first gay gospel uh, singer, artist, and uh, I think that's gospel music. And then, of course, 2010, Jennifer Knapp uh, also came out. Um, after Jennifer Knapp came out, she was endorsed by Jars of Clay, Dan Hasseltine. Uh, after Hasseltine did what he did, um, then a gentleman by the name of Matthew Paul Turner, former editor of Contemporary Christian Music Magazine, also came out in support of gay marriage. Um, <clears throat> Derek Webb has also, uh, is also you know, really popular for his uh, part in Cademan's Call, one of my favorite Christian bands of all time. Cademan's Call, uh, David, Derek Webb also making very, um, going on tour with Jennifer Knapp after she came out. Um, I don't read this to, you know, detract us from our, our lesson today, but really I, I read it more of a, a springboard, you know, because we're talking today about the doctrine of sin, you know, and how important it is for us to know what the doctrine of sin is like. But, you know, if you listen to a little podcast that I have on Red Grace Radio, um, you would have heard me several times now talk about the need to basically demand of the Christian music industry that its artists state their doctrine. Tell us what you believe. Put your doctrinal statement on your digital album. It doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> it's all digital, by the way, right? So, I mean, I would like that. I would like to know that I can go online and go to iTunes and buy a good Christian song and then, you know, who is this person? You know, Hasseltine, okay, what does he believe? At least give me something of where you're at with the, with the, with the faith, you know? And it's becoming very, um, 
it's becoming very hard to associate now with anybody. I mean, one of my favorite Christian singers of all time, of, you know, right now is Matthew Smith, Indelible Grace, uh, Red Mountain Music. These are reformed Christian artists. They basically take the ancient hymns and they put new music to it, and I think they do it in the best way. But, you know, a lot of those guys are good friends with Derek Webb. So what does that mean? You know what I mean? Are they exhorting Derek Webb? Hey, uh, you know, why would you go on tour with Jennifer Knapp? After she came out on Larry King and told the whole world that she was now a lesbian and she was arguing against the Bible and arguing against an evangelical pastor about what the Bible actually says. You know, where where is everybody at on this? You know, I mean, it just begs that, you know, it just, we're living in um, really interesting times, you know. So that's what we are talking about, though, today. We are talking about the doctrine of sin. And I just realized I need my little trusty marker here um, but you know how disappointing right I mean Derek Webb is a guy that I mean God used tremendously in my life for worship you know listening to worship prayer you know I put on a good Cadence Call album get myself ready to study the word of God and you know you've created nothing and it gives me more joy more pleasure than you those kind of songs where it's like there's a deep emotional connection to some of these songs some of this music, and then, you know, you get blindsided by something like this. Derek Webb saying, I don't really know what I believe about gay marriage anymore. You know, it's just really sad. So anyway, we're talking about, again, <clears throat> the doctrine of sin. And this has kind of been under the heading that we've been studying still with the doctrine of man. We saw the creation of man. We talked about the essential nature of man. We talked about dichotomy, trichotomy. We talked about creationism, traditionism. Uh, last week, which was a really interesting study, right? Where does the soul come from? How does God create the soul? And then how does God impart the soul? We talked about that. That's a really relevant study because theologians are on different sides of that equation. You know, you have respected people on both sides. Calvinism, or Calvin would be more of a creationist, believing that God creates the soul immediately at conception. He actually creates the soul at that instant, at that moment, whereas Jonathan Edwards and some other theologians would say, no, uh, they believe in traditionism, which means that the creation of the soul is a result of the union of man and woman, that at conception, at the procreation process, the soul is created as a result of that. So, you know, interesting to know where we come from, though, right? <laughs> you know, and I basically landed on the side of Calvin of saying, no, create is not something that man can do. So it's just the very weight of that and the passages that we looked at, I landed on the side of saying, if it has the word create, creation next to it, uh, there's only one creator, you know? Uh, and of course we saw the argument Jonathan Edwards is trying to protect, zealous to protect the idea that God ceased creating on the Sabbath day, he rested from all of his works creating a soul at conception every time someone is conceived would be as if God perpetually is creating and never stopped creating. So I hear that argument loud and clear, but still that does not, to me, override uh, this argument and some of the clear teaching of Scripture. So now that we know uh, some of the views of, you know, where we came from and who we are, this gets into uh, the creation itself, um, and the doctrine of man itself. But before we can get into, let's say, the covenant nature between God and man, things like that, 
I want to talk about the entrance of sin into the world. And so we are, does anybody know what the study of sin is called? The study of sin. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> that's right. It is, um, I almost wrote synology. Harmatiology. <laughs> <laughs> if I spelled it wrong, sorry, but you get the point. It's from um, Hamartia. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. And so hamartiology, just like theology, theos is the Greek word for God. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin, hamartiology. So that's what we're, that's what we're talking about. And hamartiology is very important because if you err on hamartiology, you can have some very, very heretical positions <coughs> on who man is, uh, the nature of all sorts of things. So, for example, if you don't have a proper understanding of hamartiology, what other areas of theology do you think that affects? Anyone? Soteriology. Soteriology. Okay, so what is that, John? Salvation. Okay, so you say it affects the whole realm of salvation. Yes, sir. Give us just one example. Uh, if, if, if you don't think that man is completely corrupt in his sin, you can believe that man can somehow save himself. Okay. All right, so it can lead to like a self-salvation, autosoteria, autosoteriology, right? Uh, what else can be affected by the doctrine of... I know this is... John kind of monopolized the whole thing, but... Uh, what maybe more specific? What areas? What other ologies or, you know, is can be affected if you don't have the right view of sin? Anyone? Anyone? Anthropology. Anthropology. Very good. Right. So anthropology. Okay. So the study of man itself can be affected by, you know, our understanding of sin. What else? Maybe a subset from soteriology. I and mean, when we think of sin, what do we think of in our present day lives? Sanctification. Sanctification, right? Sanctification. And maybe what specifically did you think about when you thought about sanctification? Well, you don't have anything to be sanctified from if you don't see yourself as being sinful. Okay, and so, um, right, so there's no need, right? No need of sanctification if you're not sinful. Anything else come to mind with that? No need for a Savior? Okay, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're not a sinner, there's no need for sanctification. There's no need for salvation. But what about if you are saved and you have a bad understanding of sin? What if you are saved? How can that affect your present understanding of sanctification? Well, then the source of sin. The source of sin? Uh, yeah, I mean, how you cure that or how do you make things right? Is how you're sanctified? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking, that's right, so I'm thinking of a specific heresy, right? I'm thinking of perfectionism, <clears throat> you know, that's something that's real relevant because that's something that's real relevant to us because a lot of people believe this. You know, I was teaching a Bible study, you know, several years ago, a little you know, small family Bible study where we had a guest and the guy started talking about the idea that God is committed to our total sanctification in this life. 
I'm like, okay, so what, 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 are you, what are you talking about? What do you mean by that? Well, I just believe that the Spirit can complete our sanctification. So right now, like, you can get to a point of being sinless. Let me step on your toe. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just as simple as that, guys. You know, so, so yeah, so if we don't have a proper understanding of sin, all, do you see, though? Do you see? I mean, all of this, and we could just elaborate and extend and expound out from there. And, I mean, you could get to the point where, literally, you could probably argue every aspect of, of, of theology can be affected if you don't understand sanctific or uh, sin properly, the doctrine of sin, homartiology. If you don't get this, I mean, your theology would be uh, also affected because who sanctifies you? The spirit, right? Primarily. Ultimately, it's, it's theology that it affects. I mean, yeah, you, just read, you just read examples of folks that they're, they, they're, they love their sin or love sin so much that they actually reject what God has actually told them. That's right. They change the color of it. Yeah, I mean, look at that. It affects your view of the law. Right? The law of God is thrown out the window. I mean, if you accept Jennifer Knapp's view of sanctification and sin, right. right? God endorses what the Bible says he forbids. Right? And they weasel out and they've got all these, you know, I don't want to jump on that hobby. I mean, I do, but I won't. You know what I mean? It's very tempting, but... Uh, so that's important. So <clears throat> let's talk about some of the very basics. So I want to talk about... Uh, just to make it kind of simple, the who, when, what, where, how of sin, okay? And so the very first thing I want to talk about is the what of sin. So what is sin? What is sin? Okay, so sin is directly uh, connected to the idea of namas, right? And so sin is called something like ah-namas. Right? No law. Right? I think you're thinking probably of the passage of Scripture that says in 1 John, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So sin is the transgression of God's law. Why is that important that we get that? Why is that important? Um, if any of you have done any study on this at all with... With, um, with any good systematic theology, uh, I, which I really recommend, it's important because if you don't define sin as the transgression of God's law, then sin is the transgression of something else. Sin can be the transgression of your environment, as the liberals would say. Sin can be the, the messed up psychological condition of a human being, you know, as the psychologists say. I mean, you know, at what point... You know, sin is the, you know, sin is just a word that we use in a, uh, you know, in a, in a social contract of morality, which is what, you know, most university students are being taught across the world right now, is that there's no ultimate morality. There is no transcendent law. Morality is a convention of man. We use it pragmatically to get by in the world. Right? So there's no actual violation of sin. It's like this gentleman in Seattle. You know, I'm talking to him on the microphone, and I said, he comes up and says, you know, uh, something like, you know, how does God answer for slavery, genocide? I said, you said you were atheist. And he said, yeah, so what? I said, okay, do you believe in absolute morality? No. Then why are you asking a moral question? 
right? Somebody that doesn't believe in morality has no reason to ask moral questions. <laughs> just completely. So it's nice to pretend to be in my worldview for a second, doesn't it? Because you can make sense out of your question. But in your worldview, there's no ultimate transcendent law. There's no morality. Then there's no reason to ask a question like, why is it wrong for slavery or genocide or pick your sin? If it's just a figment of your imagination, if it's just the way that we are, if it's just a convention of man, if it's just a pragmatic rule that we made up so that we can get along in this universe, but there's no actual wrongdoing. He went so far as to say, if somebody murdered my mother in a court of law, he says, uh, and he, he is convicted, he says, I believe that no actual wrong was done. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Guys, this is what the, this is what the rising generation believes. I know because I'm at the university every, you know, all the time, UNT, talking to these bright young students, and they don't believe in right and wrong. They don't believe in absolute truth. They'll sit there in front of you and look at you. I, I, don't, I don't know anything. What? And this is what your $60,000 tuition's gotten you? You don't know anything? You don't know if you exist? You don't know right from wrong? I mean, it's just a really, really sad state of affairs, especially when you got ISIS and groups like that who absolutely know something. They know that the Quran is the word of Allah. They know that the Quran is their creed. They know that jihad is the law of the land. They know the truth. And yet, what are we breeding here in America? We're breeding a generation of truth deniers. You know, so it just, it can have far reaching consequences if you don't ground all morality in the law of God. It can have far reaching consequences. So. If, we, if you ground it in God's law, it's not just law, but it's God's law. So that means that sin is fundamentally a psychological condition. Sin is essentially a physiological condition. What is, the, the, what is at the very core of sin? What, 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 what is the nature of it? What is the context in which sin happens? Theologians say sin is primarily religious. It's not enough to say sin is a moral issue. Right? Sin is not primarily a moral issue, folks. Sin is primarily a religious issue. You have offended God. Right? It's not that you've just offended society, offended your family, offended your parents, offended yourself, offended the environment. Sin is a consequence of the creature-creation distinction, right? A violation, really, of that, of that relationship. Any questions, comments, anything? I, I don't want to be the only one talking. Yes, sir? I would say, kind of when, I was, when you asked the question, what is at the core? Um, yeah. Being, you know, I would say pride is part of that religious core. Uh-huh. We're we're worshiping ourselves in that, and when we sin. Right. And yeah, yeah. I see how that fits in with being a religious core. And people have debated like, what is the essential nature of sin? Like the first sin, what was it? What is it grounded in? And I think it's important to talk about this, and we can fight about this. You know, so, well, pride. Pride is the number one thing. You know what I mean? But most theologians point out that sin is about autonomy, right? And what is autonomy? Autonomy, what is that about? A law to oneself. A law to yourself, right? Would you like to 
is prideful. Which is prideful. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Well, all of these things kind of tie into. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. So it's like I wouldn't make a. I wouldn't die on that hill. Yeah. Well, sin is pride. No, it's autonomy. Right. You know. <laughs> it's yeah. It's all of it. You know. It's all about that. It's 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 wanting to be self-governing. It's wanting to be you know um, self-determining. And that's what you see in Genesis chapter 3, right? I mean, that's exactly the consequence or uh, the result of, or that's the tactic, right, that the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 uses, right? So he uses the idea of autonomy, right? And if we look at the sin of Satan, for example, in those kind of vague, obscure kind of passages like uh, Ezekiel 28, uh, Isaiah 14, you look at those kind of passages that some say, well, king of Babylon, I don't know, it's kind of, that, that, that what's said about the king of Babylon is a little bit too much for a real physical earthly king. There's some sort of analogy here because it says that he were in the garden of God, you know. And so historically, theologians have, at- have attached what is said in Isaiah 14 about the king of Babylon to Satan. There is overtones there, almost like a double entendre, of yes, it applies to the king, but the author is making an analogy to the king, to Satan himself. Which think about that, you know, um, and really, what is what is the very nature of it? You know, the nature was that he wanted to think for himself. As a matter of fact, it says the serpent was more crafty. Immediately getting to the mind of the serpent, right? Getting to the worldview of the serpent, shrewd. Right? He's conniving. He's a deceiver. So it has everything to do with the mind of the devil, how he thinks. And that's exactly what he uses on Eve. Indeed, has God said. So it's an epistemological, you know, uh, dilemma, right? Um, it's an epistemological dilemma. I mean, you're, you're, asking, you're asking about whether or not you can know the truth. And I've actually written this, this down, but... Um, uh, in the temptation and when sin comes into the world, um, we can say that these things are put forth. Okay, what is true? So Eve is challenged to determine, will you determine for yourself what is true? Okay. What is, what is true? God made this commandment. He said this. Now the serpent is saying this. So you have an epistemological crisis. <clears throat> How, what will govern your thinking? Yes, ma'am. Well, and we see that today when everybody's saying, well, I feel or what I think is right for me is right That's for right. me and what you think is right for you is right for you. It's just that, that same uh, right. back to Genesis again. That's right. So, but it's not just it's not just affecting. Um, it's not just affecting the mind. It's not just affecting epistemology. It's also affecting ethics, right? Because God has prescribed something good. God said, "From any of the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat." Right? For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's the commandment with a consequence. And so now the serpent is coming by and saying, no, you shall surely not die. God knows that you'll be like God, right? He knows that you'll be like him. He's, he's trying to keep something from you. So you have a, you have a, 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 you know, a philosophical uh, a choice to make. You have an ethical choice to make. 
And then it also brings into question of not just what is true, what is right. Here we go. But what is man? It calls into question the very question of who am I at the end of the day? Am I to be someone who is comparable to God? For he knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. Is man to have that position, that status? And it goes back to autonomy. Only God, only God is autonomous. Truly, truly autonomous. Self-governing to himself. It's part of, remember this big word that we talked about before. Aseity. Remember? Aseity. So, aseity is the Latin word that means from yourself, right? God swears by who? By himself. Aseity, <laughs> right? There is no, you know, point of reference that God can go to outside of himself. Whereas as creatures, as man, we have to go outside of ourselves. We must learn what it means to be human from God, or we don't know what being human means, right? I thought it was just striking. I mentioned this last week, but that interview with Vicki Beeching as she's coming out as a lesbian, one of the things that she said is, well, I understand about, you know, the Bible. She says, but we have to go to psychology. We have to go to philosophy. You don't, God ordained for us to go to science. It's part of being human. And so what I, my question was, Vicki, how do you know what a human is mm -hmm. if not from the word of God, mm -hmm. right? Whose science journal and what physics journal are you going to follow to determine what is human and what is not? You know, there's competing theories about the physiological makeup of humanity. You know, if we don't determine what a human being is from God, well, then guess what? I will not be surprised one day if you come to the to the point of saying, you know what, uh, since I don't determine things by the word of God anymore, well, I don't know what's human anymore, and what's in the womb may not even be human at that stage. So it can have far-reaching consequences when you seek to think autonomously from God. And so that's why it's important for us. You guys got all this? At least a mental note? Okay. A phrase that um, really helped me a long time ago. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Ma'am, that was not a man's voice, sorry. <laughs> I want to add, too, that throughout history, uh, people who have, who have um, oppressed others would use an argument that these people are not human. You look back to American slavery and that they were viewed as property, viewed as subhuman. Same with, um, uh, with Hitler, with the Jews. They were viewed as somehow an inferior humanity less than human. That's right. Um, and even today, you know, it's, it's the same as with abortion, things like that. So, I mean, throughout history, man, has always sought to oppress by viewing those people as less than human. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Muslims have a verse in the Quran where it says that God turned Jews into apes and pigs. And I've seen the memory videos with little Palestinian children are being asked, what are the Jews? They're apes and pigs. So in the mind of a little Palestinian four-year-old, a Jew is not even human. It's, 
it's just the level of an ape or a pig. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. When you said what is true, remind me of the, uh, I got John 18 here. When Pilate says, so you are king? And Jesus responded, you say I am king. Actually, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. So then Pilate asks, what is truth? Yeah. And that's what we see right now is we see the world's doctrine intertwined with the biblical doctrine. And you see these false converts now trying to idolize this or break the second commandment and idolize a new Jesus, a new doctrine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just brings me to this slogan, um, you know, that our aim in life is to think God's thoughts after him, right? Which is just a way of saying, think after God, think in line with God, be in step with God. Peter, you know, Paul says, Peter, you know, confronts him in his face. You are not in step with the gospel. Right? Your thinking is off. Right? And that's why it's imperative for us, Romans 12, 3, 1 through 3, to be renewed in the thinking of our mind, to be conformed in our thinking so that we will think the thoughts of God after him. If we don't think God's thoughts after him, we don't know anything. We don't know anything, folks. You know, we don't know anything for certain. If we're left to ourselves, I mean, just look. Here, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, please. This comes back to this. If we're left to ourselves, I mean, we're just left in the dark about the most important things in life. Where we came from, who we are, and where we're going. Very simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. This is an amazing statement because it was made in Corinth. What is Corinth? Corinth is one of the philosophical hubs of the world, the ancient world. <clears throat> For the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so very important here, kind of working backwards, verse 21 it was in the wisdom of God that he set aside, right, the wisdom of the world. In the wisdom of God, he ordained, we could say, he ordained it, that the world, through its own wisdom, never came to know God. So what does that mean in a philosophical hub like Corinth or Athens? It means the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Platonics, the Socratics, all of those philosophies that are coming even prior to Socrates and Plato, all of that that they, see the reason why is because in a Corinthian you know, culture, the people prided themselves on their philosophical history, going way back you know, to, way, way back to the pre-Socratic philosophers as they call them, you know, Parmenides, Heraclitus, you know, the division of the one and the many. What is the world made out of, you know? One philosopher says the world is pure water. Another philosopher says, no, the world is, the world is made up of fire. Plato says, no, the world is idea. 
It's thought. And what the Bible says is, you're all fools. <laughs> you're all fools. Why? Because God has set aside your wisdom. He has discarded it. Like the Tower of Babel, he comes down and just confuses the, 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 you know, the attempt of mankind to be unified with one voice, to reach up to heaven, to be exalted, to be a people. In other words, why God confused the Tower of Babel was so that humanity would have no identity apart from God. So that they couldn't identify who they are apart from God. So that they don't say, we will define. So this, you know, the, the Babel, the, those at Babel, they are the first humanists. They're the first ones to say, we will have no gods to rule over us. Read the Humanist Manifesto. We have no need of spirits, genies, gods, angels, demons, right? And that's what Babel was all about. We can do it ourselves. We will build a city. We will make a name for ourselves. And God says, no, uh, watch this. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That's, of course, talking about worldly wisdom. And so working backwards, before I get to Robert, working backwards then, what he's saying is, where's the debater? What does that mean? I'm going to ask you that. What does that mean when Paul says, where is the debater? Yes, ma'am. That's right. There's no position to debate <laughs> that can stand up against the wisdom of God. Robert, yeah, sorry. It's funny because this passage that you're going over speaks directly into what we were going through yesterday. Uh -huh. um, we were having a, it was a crowd of about 20 people when we went out preaching. Oh, yeah, today, evangelism. And, yeah, yeah, and this guy was there for an hour trying to debate me. And... I, would ask, I asked him the simple presuppositional question, could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? He goes, yes. And then everything after that comes out, but this is the case. This is the fact. This is the truth. Yeah, and I go, well, how do you know that? And he goes, I don't. Right. And, and everybody's like clapping him. And, and I'm like, do you not see the foolishness of, of this line of thinking? Yeah. And uh, it's... It, it's true that once you come to know the truth, that there is no debater. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's no, there, there are no um, arguments that can be, you know, leveled against the biblical worldview that are of any rational basis or any logical consistency. Because if your friend, that, that guy you're debating, if he wants his objection or his debate, his argument to make sense. He's already established, I can't use my worldview because according to my worldview, I could be wrong about everything I claim to know. Therefore, I don't know if this argument is even true or real or right. I don't even know if we're here. I could be you know, upside down in a psych ward somewhere he, he with actually, a needle in my back. He, he, I mean, there is no way to know if you're not in the matrix he, he in looked, his worldview. He looked at a fire hydrant and he goes, I don't know if that's an actual fi a fire hydrant. I mean, that, that, of was, course. One of his, that was yeah. one of his answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I my, don't know if yeah, so that's what saying is, what he's saying is my worldview is absurd and I want your worldview to be absurd too. That's really what he's saying. The Bible says you'll stand in contradiction to yourself. Uh, another, somebody, yeah. I was saying um, the verse here, you know, um, where is the debater of this age? You yeah. know, kind of a rhetorical question. Reminds me of in Job when God says, uh, where were you 
when I formed the world. Uh, I forget the chapter and verse, but that's you know his uh, response to him. Where were you when I formed the world? That's right. And then, of course, and also reminds me of Romans nine, says, "Who are you, O man, to answer to God?" Wow, that's good. I mean, yeah. Okay, so if that's what if that's what the debater means is that no one has the ability to debate, then what does where is the scribe mean? What do you think that's referring to? Who are the scribes? What did they do? Okay, so what does that mean? If Paul is now saying, where's the scribe? Cody? Where are any of you who have actual wisdom? That's right. Who has a source of knowledge? Where's the, who, who wrote down the book? <laughs> Where are your annals of human history that go back to the first man that has ever been created in the world, right? Who has the, the, the source of knowledge to instruct you about what real wisdom is, in essence, right? There's no one. There's no one. You, you, you know, and you, you can see this, right? On a practical level, you study the textual criticism of the Quran. There's no Quran. I talk to Muslims, I say, where's the Quran? We have the Quran, we have it. Every, where's it at, where? Saudi Arabia, Turkey? Where is the manuscript? No, 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 you know, it, it exists in all the Qurans. So then you don't have the real Quran. <laughs> you know, so they like to you know play this game. You know, and everybody does. There is no one who has a source of knowledge that is reliable like the biblical worldview. You know, no one knows the mind of God because of that, and therefore the reduction is there is no wise man apart from the cross. Nobody has true religious knowledge apart from biblical Christianity. Nobody is able to contend with the wisdom of God. Right? That's, that's what it boils down to. And that has everything to do with sin. Because of sin, because of Satan, we don't know, if we go, if we go the way of autonomy, we don't know what is true, so it affects epistemology. We don't know what is right, so it affects ethics. And we don't know what we are. We don't know who man is. So it affects our own very being ourselves, our existential makeup. See that? I love Sunday school. I just, I love it. I was just yes, ma'am. Say something. You know, just talking about you know we know we're born sinners, and and then you know just raising children in general and raising them in the ways of the Lord and giving them that foundation. And yeah, doesn't necessarily mean they're guaranteed salvation, but. Just taking the natural sin, like I look at my six-year-old and I hear the things that he says, like naturally he rebels against authority. Like he'll say, when I grow up, I want to have my own rules, you know. Yeah. So I think, I can imagine, especially today, and they, go, and they go off into college and they have all these horrible worldly influences that are just cultivating that foolishness and that disbelief or unbelief. And yeah. I just, it's scary, the thought of how you're already naturally a sinner, and then you have just more corrupt yeah. views. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of smart people in this world, right? Bart Ehrman is a very smart man. Uh, Bart Ehrman, for those that don't know, Bart Ehrman is, um, was, was one of the leading textual critics uh, of the 21st century, 20th and 21st century. He wrote a book with Bruce Metzger. 
uh, uh, talking about the, the textual criticism of the New Testament. And he talks about how the New Testament talks about the, um, the transmission, the corruption, and the restoration of the New Testament. And he wrote that with Bruce Metzger, who was probably at that time, he, he's, he's, uh, Bruce Metzger is dead now, but he was, for as long as he was alive, probably the most respected textual critic in the world who knew more about manuscripts and canon and transmission than anybody. And Bart Ehrman was his right-hand man. That was his, that was his protege. He was never as good as Bruce Metzger, but he was his protege. And Bruce Metzger has denied the faith now and calls himself a happy agnostic. Bart, 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 Bart Ehrman, thank you. Good, thank you, because it's on the record, so it's good. <laughs> so Bart Ehrman denies the faith now, calls himself a happy agnostic, but sometimes he, you know, it just, a simple Sunday school level understanding of the Bible just blows everything Bart Ehrman ever says out of the water. You know, and I wrote a blog on this on Red Grace. I said, I know more than Bart Ehrman, and so do you. Because Bart Ehrman said in, an, in a TV interview, he said that God, uh, that Jesus, according to the manuscript evidence, was schizophrenic. There's a point on the cross where he says, you know, uh, Father, I commit my spirit unto you. For, you know, uh, he makes all these statements on the cross. Says, but in, in Mark, he says, he says, why have you forsaken me? I said, that's it? This guy, the smartest guy in the world, right? That's how the media touts him around, right? It's the smartest person that ever lived, you know. Leading textual critic. The leading textual critic of the world. Hasn't done any work yeah. In that oh boy, and he is leading college kids straight to hell. Wow. At an inordinate rate, writing the most blasphemous books. It's like what he pointed out there is so easily refuted. Jesus is quoting a prophecy out of the Psalms. It's a prophetic fulfillment. It's not like he's questioning himself. He's fulfilling scripture. I mean, that's a Sunday school level understanding. But that's what happens when you stand against God. God looks at you and says, where's the debate of this age? Who has wisdom? John. Well, we had uh, sovereign joy. Yeah. I wish everybody here could have seen. Pastor Emilio actually went up to Bart Ehrman after the debate and was asking him questions. <laughs> Ill-advised. He was getting flustered, flustered. Finally, a dude had to come and he almost kind of like grabbed. He him almost grabbed me. <laughs> you were standing there, so he's like, "Well, if I grab him, maybe this big guy will grab me." So, <laughs> hey, I better not. But I mean, it was amazing because it wasn't that Pastor Emilio was asking him, you know, these hard, deep, philosophical. He was just asking him simple questions, and Bart Ehrman could not answer. Them. And that was really like my introduction to the presuppositional method of apologetics. Yeah. Like, okay, this is different. I got to right. do this. <laughs> this guy's so brilliant. I just asked him, I said, Bart, I said, I have very limited time with you. I said, no, I, and you're busy. I said, so I just want to know, now that you've abandoned the Christian faith, I, I asked him something like, apart from the Christian faith, how do you get morals, meaning, and beauty? And he goes, everybody knows that. I said, so it's just axiomatic? But who's, I said, but surely, you know, I told him, surely you understand the problem, the, philo the philosophical problem of truth in many minds. Because what's true to you in your brain is not true to me in my brain. So then how do we arbitrate what is true between us? And he just started, no, oh, that's ridiculous. That's so, that's so stupid. This is what I hate about Christianity, you know. So, so you can't answer the question. Anyway, don't, you brought me back, man. That was pure jihad right there. Uh, yes, sir. I just wanted to make a great point. Chris kind of touched on it with the book of Job, but you can probably verify this. How old is the book of Job considered? I'm not sure, but I think it's the oldest, the oldest book in the Bible. 
Yeah, probably 4,000 before Christ, 4, right? So Contemporary with Abraham. When you're talking about uh, the great minds of, you know, Plato and those that perceive how the world was created, it clearly states in Job 26, verse 7 and 8, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Right. Where the great minds of the 16th, 17th century, the scientists that were considered the great minds are saying, the earth is flat. It hangs on the shoulders of a man or on a tortoise. That's right. <laughs> 4,000 years before Christ. It clearly states it hangs on nothing, suspended in air on nothing. Yeah. One, yeah, that's right. Amen. Yes, one sir. thing I love about uh, Psalm 9, especially towards the end, um, and it kind of goes back to what we're talking about in First Corinthians, where is the debater of the sage, where mm-hmm. is the scribe? And Psalm 9, just the last verse, uh, put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Um, really, I think a big issue that has come to light for me is that I'm a man and God is God, and there's no way to for me to come any higher than what I am. Yeah. And David's saying he knows my frame that I'm. That's best. right. Right. And that's the best place for any man to. Yeah. To come to. What is it? Job seven seven. I think it is. Remember that we are but breath. I mean, we're nothing. God, we're you know we're going to talk about that today in the sermon, Lord willing. But um, um, let me let me kind of bring us back by reading us a quote. But this is from uh, Herman Bavink on this whole issue of autonomy and reason, and all of that. He says the point of the fall narrative in Genesis is to point point is to point excuse me is to point to the human desire for autonomy from God. To know good and evil is to become the determiner of good and evil. It is to decide for oneself what is right and wrong and not submit to any external law. In short, to seek the knowledge of good and evil is to desire emancipation from God. It is to want to be like God. That is the evil. That is what's at stake with unbiblical worldviews. It is the desire to be like God. Nothing short of that. Right? It is total blasphemy is what it is. Um... I, I have no time to teach this next part of my notes. <laughs> I ruined this. Um, we end a little bit early, so let's pray. And we'll go to go to worship. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that you have given us in your Word. Father, forbid that there be any unbelief in our heart, and I know that that's real. I've seen enough apostasy, and I know that the wickedness of my own heart to know, God, that if you do not keep us, intercede for us, Jesus. If you do not protect us and guard our faith, Father, there we all go the way of Bart Ehrman and everybody else. So, Lord, we are asking for your protection. We humbly come to you and we humbly ask for confidence, for conviction, for certainty. We ask for a total uh, reliance and trust in your word. Father, do this, Lord, we pray in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.